I have so many things around my ears on Sunday morning. <laughs> good morning. It is good to be with you. We are on episode 21 of The Plan. We're heading into the end of 2 Kings, and uh, I'm, I'm getting really excited because next week is when everything changes, um, and the story is just, everything really starts coming together, which isn't to say that this week isn't any good, but just to say I'm getting really excited because I know this is a long series. We are well past my record for the longest series I've done, but uh, the story of the Bible is so fascinating, and the way that it moves through the entire, this one story moves through the entire Bible to me is really helpful and encouraging and inspiring to me to know that I play a place, I have a place in that same story. And the story that we've been looking at, the way we've been summarizing the story of the Bible is this, that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. So God made the world and he put people in it and he gave us the task of ruling the world on his behalf. That's what we're here for. That's what we were designed for. And God wants to live here with us as we do that. And unfortunately, we're really good at messing that up. Adam and Eve messed it up, and, and we keep messing up God's plan. But the Bible is the story of God not giving up on that plan. It's of God continually working to restore it. And starting with Abraham in Genesis 12, God decides to work through one particular group of people to show the plan through them so that the whole world can look at Israel and see who God is and what he wants for his people. And we've been seeing Israel struggle to live into that plan. God gave them each part of it. He made them his people. He gave them the kingdom of Israel. He uh, gave them his law to tell them how to fulfill their purpose. And he came to live with them in Israel. And yet they're still struggling to fulfill that, to be obedient to God and to reflect him into the world. To the point that the kingdom of Israel has now been broken into two different kingdoms. The ten northern tribes are the kingdom of Israel, and then the kingdom of Judah is to the south. And last week we looked at how the kingdom of Israel really went off the rails. They actually went so far as to reject God as their God, and they chose Baal instead. And we looked at how God called the prophets, Elijah... Uh, and then Elisha later, to confront them about that and call them back to the covenant. And at the end of the sermon, we pointed towards what was going to happen, uh, to how God was going to resolve that. He sent Jehu, who was a, a general, an Israelite general, and he led a rebellion, and he, he deposed Ahab's son. But he, he, went, he actually went a little bit overboard, where he killed every single member of the family of Ahab. It's like 70 people, and then he killed every single worshiper of uh, Baal, and it was this bloodbath. In fact, it was so bad that there's a, one of the minor prophets talks about how God then has to judge Jehu for the way he wiped out Ahab's family. Because what ultimately happens is Jehu does lead them back to God, but really mainly because he wants them to follow him. And so he's not really sincere in following God. He's just using it as an excuse to kill off his rivals. So as we enter the story today, a few generations later, what we find is Israel, even though they aren't, they aren't, Baal isn't their main God anymore, they're back to following God, they're not actually better off in their trajectory. And God's going to take some pretty drastic action. And it's going to shift the focus of our story. So as we go into our, our uh, first reading today, um, I want you to remember our coordinates, how we keep our bearings in a story. Who is God? Who are God's people? Where's their home? 
What is, uh, how can they meet with God and what has God called them to do? That's what we want to have in place before we move into the story proper. So let's start in 2 Kings 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. So he was, he was bad. He wasn't as bad as Ahab, but he was bad. Shalmanassar, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Shalmanassar's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmanassar seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, and in the Haber River, and in the towns of the Medes. Okay, so that's a pretty big deal. Ten tribes of Israel just got destroyed. Their kingdom's destroyed, their king is taken away, they're deported, most of the Israelites are deported. The kingdom of Israel is gone. That's a really big deal. So what's left if the kingdom of Israel is gone? Well, chapter 18 starts this way. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So Israel's gone, but the, king of, the kingdom of Judah is still around, and their king is Hezekiah. So now the only, we haven't really looked at the southern kingdom so far, and now they're the only ones left. So, who is the story about now? It's about Hezekiah and the Judahites. It's technically the name for someone from the kingdom of Judah, Judahite. Where is their home? It's the kingdom of Judah. And if you've noticed in the maps we've been looking at so far, Israel tends to be surrounded by nations of about the same size, like their neighborhood is is countries about the same size, then they often are the biggest kid in the, on the block. The neighborhood has changed a bit. This is so that Judah is this little brown patch here next to this huge green empire of the Assyrians. And what you normally call a little kingdom on the edge of a huge empire, the word is a vassal. You saw it in the reading. A vassal. Uh, so the kingdom of Judah is currently a vassal of Assyria. Now, what is a vassal? A vassal is a country that is technically on paper independent, but that's only if they don't um, aggravate the big kingdom next to them. It means that they do what the empire tells them, the, their, the empire next to them tells them to do. They probably pay mo- protection money to that empire. If that empire goes to war, they go with them. Uh, the closest example I can think of in my lifetime would be the countries in the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War. So like East Germany and Czechoslovakia and all those different countries, they weren't technically part of the Soviet Union, but they just happened to agree with the Soviet Union on everything, right? (laughs) Those are vassals. Technically, they're independent, but there's consequences if they disagree with the big empire, with the bully on the block. So the next coordinate is uh, presence. How can they meet with God? So where's God at this point? This is what Judah has going for them. They're a little country, but God's presence is on earth, is at the temple, which is in Jerusalem, in their capital city. 
They actually have access to the presence of God. Israel, the northern kingdom, had the issue that they couldn't meet God in their kingdom. They would technically have had to go to Jerusalem. But for the Judahites, God lives with them. So that, they've got that going for them. Now, what is their job? And specifically, what is Hezekiah's job as their leader? By now, you know the main job of the kings of Israel and Judah. It is to obey God. We've made that pretty clear, right? Every sermon we talk about how important it is for the uh, kings to obey God because they rule on God's behalf. But here, I think there, uh, Hezekiah has a unique opportunity to get clarity from another source of information. Uh, that was a weird way to say that. But the point is, I, I am a third out of four siblings. So I got really good at something. I would watch when my brothers got in trouble, my older brothers. I would watch what did they do wrong, how did they get caught? And what were the consequences? <laughs> and I used that to try and avoid getting in trouble myself, right? I was paying attention. I learned. And thankfully, I think it's easier for a younger sibling because I watched my brothers step on all the landmines and then I knew where they were, right? So if Hezekiah is smart, he has seen Israel get punished and he can pay attention to what did they do wrong and avoid that, right? So, uh, chapter 17 tells us exactly why God sent Israel into exile, why he destroyed the northern kingdom. It says, all this, the destruction of Israel, took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles in every high hill and under every spreading tree. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn away from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. So other than the general obey God and worship only God, there's two, two highlights that kind of come out of that. Number one is he should destroy the idols in the high places, right? Don't worship, other, don't worship graven images and don't worship in other places than, don't offer sacrifices and things in places other than the temple. That was the big thing that got Israel in trouble, and it tends to be, in the book of Kings, the, the most uh, significant way that the kings are judged. They're a good king if they tear down the high places. They're a really good king if they tear down the high places. If they, if they build new high places, they're really bad, and that's kind of the scale that they're rated on, right? So destroying the idols in the high places is really important. And then the other one is listen to the prophets. If you're not sure, listen to the prophets because God sends prophets to tell them what to do. And the Israelites had plenty of prophets. They actually had more prophets than the southern kingdom telling them, hey, you're on the wrong track, and they just didn't listen. So if Hezekiah is smart, that's what he'll do. So now we're going into the story, and the question is, how smart is Hezekiah? How well does he do? And at this point, we've been burned so many times that we're not expecting much, right? Out of 20 kings of Israel, of the northern kingdom, not a single one was rated well in the book of Kings. So how does Hezekiah do? Well, turns out Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, 
For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. So, Hezekiah served God and tore down the high places. Hezekiah did great. He did really, really well. He did exactly what he's supposed to do. And because he did that, he had success. His kingdom was stable. Um, his rule was strong. He was, uh, his, the, the Assyrians actually got distracted in wars in other places, and so they pretty much left him alone. And in fact, he even, what I see in this, don't, don't, I'm not saying the Bible says this, but what I see going on here, it seems like Hezekiah at least sees himself as on track to be a new Solomon because he's doing things the right way, right? And so the trajectory seems to be when you do things the right way, God builds up the kingdom and they end up becoming that kingdom on a hill that everybody streams to kind of a thing. And that's what's happening with Hezekiah. They're prosperous, they're stable. He even actually starts to reconnect with the people that are left in the northern kingdom. Because not all the Israelites are gone. There are still Israelites there. And it says that Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are the two biggest northern tribes. Inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel. So he actually, he gets all the Israelites that are still in the land together to celebrate Passover. Things are going really well. It looks like he is on track to rebuild the whole kingdom of Israel because he's being faithful to God. And, and I think Hezekiah could be forgiven for being really confident at this moment. A little overconfident, unfortunately, as it turns out. Because he decides that the next natural step, if he's got God on his side and God is rebuilding the kingdom, he doesn't need to worry about Assyria anymore. Especially since they've been off worrying about other parts of the empire. He, he's like, I got God on my side. I, I can be bold. I can, I can take the kingdom where it needs to go. And so, because the Lord was with Hezekiah and he was successful in whatever, uh, whatever he undertook, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So, as Hezekiah grew stronger, he decided to rebel against the Assyrian Empire. Which is a bold move. And often, when we tell stories from the Bible about people doing things on God's behalf and being bold about them, the lesson is, see, when you're bold and you do something for God, God makes it work, and it, it works out, and you get the thing that you were bold to do, right? It's not how this story is going to go. Because what actually happens is that in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, the new king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. That's the way the book of Kings puts it. Turns out we've actually found the propaganda that Sennacherib wrote to talk about this campaign, and we have his version of the events too, and it's a little bit more uh, detailed. He says, As for Hezekiah the Jew, who did not bow in submission to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled towns and innumerable smaller villages in their neighborhood I besieged and conquered. I made come out from them 200,010 200, people, innumerable horses, mules, donkeys, camels, large and small cattle, and counted them as the spoils of war. Hezekiah himself I shut up like a caged bird within Jerusalem, his royal city. So what's actually happened is that, that the Assyrians have conquered Judah. 
and they've laid siege to Jerusalem. Everything but Judah is conquered. They've successfully besieged 46 fortresses, 46 walled cities. Like that is, they have an unbroken record. They just, victory after victory, the, the Judahites haven't even been able to slow them down. So they've just been devastated by the Assyrians, which is exactly what happened to all the other enemies of the Assyrians. So when he goes after Judah, they don't fare any better. And now Hezekiah is walled up in his city. All the people of Judah who are left have streamed into the city. It's full of refugees. And uh, he's staring at the biggest, most, most violent army in the world at his gates. So he sends out three representatives to meet with the commander of this army, and they have a conversation. And the commander of the Assyrian army is brilliant with psychological warfare, or you might even say spiritual warfare. Because here's what he says. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say that you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? If you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy that's a pretty interesting argument. Because Hezekiah, when he tore down the, the high places, there would have been a lot of people who said, no, no, God wants us to worship at the high places. Because that's what they were doing. They were worshiping Yahweh at the high places. So there were a lot of people who thought, no, no, we, that's, you just destroyed God's shrines. If Hezekiah is wrong in what he did, then he would have really angered Yahweh, right? He would have really angered the God of Israel if God liked those shrines. So now he picks a fight with Assyria, and the Assyrians come in, and nobody's able to stop them. And, he's, and now the general's standing at the front door saying, hey, maybe you were wrong about the high places. God sent me here to punish you because you did the wrong thing. How else are you supposed to interpret the fact that I just waltzed in here and took everything from you? Does it seem like God's on your side? It's a pretty powerful argument. And when Hezekiah hears it, he, is, he does the right thing. He sends someone to ask the prophet, to check in with the prophet, like, is, is this right? And there, the prophet at this time, he's rather famous. You may have heard of him. His name's Isaiah. He wrote a book. You hear it at Christmas and Easter and probably a lot of other times. It's called the book of Isaiah. And uh, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, he said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, he will, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. So Isaiah basically says, hey, don't listen to him. He's not speaking for God. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You're on the right track, so just trust God, and I'm going to take care of it. God will take care of it. Right? So Hezekiah gets that message, and then this happens. Sennacherib received a report that Terhaka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him, which is exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen. But 
These guys are really good with the spiritual psychological warfare. He sent, again, sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard of what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely, and will you be delivered? Now, I've shortened that. I didn't give the whole thing because he lists countries that they destroyed. And you know, one of them was the kingdom of Israel. You know who the God of the kingdom of Israel is? It's the same God that Hezekiah is depending on. So he's pointing to the tracker and he said, look at this list of gods who could not defend their people from the Assyrian Empire. One of them is yours. And you think that just because I'm getting, I'm getting pulled away on a little errand that you're going to get away from me? No, no. Your God can't actually stop me. Because if he could, things wouldn't have gone the way they went. The history of your kingdom would not have gone the way it went. You wouldn't be in this situation if God was on your side or if God could defeat me. So the Assyrians tried to make Hezekiah doubt God's plan. Isaiah told him to trust God. And that's, that's the tension that he's in. And that is, it's easy for us to look back and say, oh, well, Hezekiah should know exactly what to do. It's so obvious. Just trust God. But if it were that obvious, we would be better at dealing with that doubt in our own lives, right? It's easy for us to look at that because we know how the story, of, you know, even if you don't know this specific story, you know that the story of the Bible is generally, you know, God wins. But in our own lives, we face the same kind of situations where things don't go the way we were expecting. We think, well, maybe, maybe this isn't really what God wanted for me, even though it's something that's clear in the Bible. Or we say, maybe God can't actually win this, or maybe doing things God's way can't actually win this battle or get me through this crisis. And we, we struggle with those doubts all the time. And so that's why I, I can really, I can really um, sympathize with Hezekiah in this moment. And I also think it's really, really powerful what Hezekiah chooses to do here. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. So he, he has this message from the king of Assyria saying, God can't save you. God can't protect you. I'm going to destroy you. And he takes that letter into the temple and he unrolls it before God. So often what we want to do with our doubts and our struggles is we want to hide them and pretend they're not happening and not talk about them with God. Because we think somehow it makes, us a bad, makes me a bad believer if I'm struggling with doubts. And so we don't talk about it. He lays it all out there. He takes the message and he unrolls it in the presence of God. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Something really important that Hezekiah says here that I think we need to key in on because this is one of those phrases that I heard a lot in the Old Testament and never quite got what it meant. Why does he tell, why does he ask God to deliver them? So that the nations will know, so the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, Lord, are God. That is the plan, right? That is the mission that God chose Israel for. Israel exists as a nation 
to show the world who God is. And Hezekiah, his preferred way to show the world who God is was to build an empire that was prosperous and wise and better than Solomon's, that everybody would be able to look at this victorious kingdom and see that's who God is because God's on the side of this great kingdom. That's probably what he wanted. But now he's under siege, and he's surrounded by this army that could easily destroy him. And what he asks is for God to accomplish his plan in this situation, in these circumstances. Because God's plan can still happen by delivering Jerusalem. If God defeats a powerful army in this way, that will show the world who the true God is. He can use this powerless city under siege, the same way he could use a powerful empire like Solomon's. And so Hezekiah, what he has in view is God's plan. He doesn't say, save us because I've done what you told me to do and I've been faithful. He doesn't say, save us because I don't want to die. He doesn't say, save us because, you know, all those things are true. And he would have had many reasons to want to be saved, right? But the reason that he brings before God is that this is how this will accomplish your plan. So deliver us in a way that shows the world that you are God. So Hezekiah asked God to deliver Jerusalem for the sake of his plan to reach the nations. I think that's what makes the situation in Jerusalem different from the situation in Samaria at the beginning of the sermon. Then now God can deliver Jerusalem in a way that vindicates who God is. Because Hezekiah is looking to show the world, if we get delivered, it's only because God saved us, and it's only because he's the true God. And so what happens? That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Funny, he doesn't include that part of the story in his um, propaganda he, he actually leaves it where I left it. I caged him up in his city, and then it ends, and he moves on. <laughs> Probably because he doesn't want to admit to this part where God shows that the king of Assyria is not actually in control. Then one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his son Andromelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword. They escaped to the land of Ararat, and Azaradon, his son, succeeded him as king. Exactly as God said was going to happen. So God heard Hezekiah's prayer and delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Now, they're not exactly in a great place. They survived. They didn't didn't so much win as they survived, right? They're going to come out of this um, um, very, a whole bunch of towns destroyed, but they're still there. And the only way to explain that they're still there is the fact that the God of Israel is real and he protected them. And for now, the kingdom of Judah survives. For now. What we learn from this story, again, so often we're looking at these stories and they're completely different circumstances from us today, but we, we worship the same God and we work in the same plan. We're called to be part of the same plan, even though we're in a very different stage of God's plan. We work with the same God. So what do we learn from this story? The first thing I think it's really important for us to know this, is that even when we follow God's plan, we may find ourselves under siege. Anyone who tells you that following God will give you victory in everything that you want is not telling you the truth. 
And I know I end up talking about this a lot, but I think it's because we hear the opposite a lot. That this idea that if you follow God, he's going to win all your battles the way you want. He's going to give you all these things, and if we're faithful, we get the things we want. That's not how it works. Sometimes, it, we, you know, God is a God who loves us and cares for us, and he's a generous father. But when we follow God, we still may find ourselves under siege. Last week, we talked about the fact that sometimes it'll be because we're representing God well and people reject God. But other times, it's just because it's not the path that we're going to take. You know, you went, for a, you went for a promotion, and you just didn't have the credentials, or you didn't know the right people, or the person didn't make a good decision, but they made the decision. You know, maybe there are a lot of things that can happen where, um, you know, you took, you, you're trying to buy a house, but it's a hard market, and there just, there isn't something in your price range, because those are the circumstances of the world that we're in, and there are a lot of things that can happen where you are following God, and you still find yourself under siege. Relationships are broken, circumstances aren't going well, your health isn't going well, whatever these things are, where you find yourself under siege, and it's not because you're not following God. Because the Bible doesn't say that Hezekiah did anything wrong. He has a story of how he did something wrong. He's not perfect. But in this circumstance, it doesn't say he was sinful for going to war against, against Assyria. It just wasn't the plan that God, it wasn't the way God was going to, to um, protect Judah. It just wasn't in the cards for him. And the same thing will happen to us. That we will be in circumstances where we feel like we're under siege. And in those moments... It's easy for us to doubt God's plan and choose our own plan instead. And again, I know this is something that I also talk about a lot, and I think it's because I see it as the biggest temptation of Christians in circumstances. In our current place and time, the biggest temptation we have is to try and accomplish God's wrong means. Where we lose faith in doing things God's way, we lose faith in doing things with integrity, with honesty, with compassion, with love, and instead we turn to other ways to accomplish our goals. We think, well, it's not, compassion isn't going to work, so I'm going to turn to anger, I'm going to turn to hate, turn to dishonesty, I'm going to turn to all these other means of trying to accomplish either things for God's kingdom or things for my own life, because we genuinely lose faith that doing things God's way will lead to the right outcome, which in some way means that we don't really trust God to carry through on his plan, and we're going to take control and make sure that it turns out right. And I know that's a major temptation for us today because I feel that all the time. It's one of the reasons why I hardly do anything on Facebook, because I I struggle with social media because it's just, it's so hard to, I don't know, it's just a weird atmosphere. Um, But that's the temptation for us. And so what we need to learn from this story is that what was true for Hezekiah is true for us because it is the exact same God. Right? It is the exact same God who has the exact same mission to show the world who he is through his people so that we can all be reconciled to him. And so what that tells us is that if we trust God in those hard times, he is faithful to fulfill his plan in our lives. And that pronoun is important, his plan. Because Hezekiah's plan was probably to have a big prosperous empire. And for their prosperity and their victory to show, God, to show people this is the most powerful God because they're the most powerful kingdom and everything's going right. 
God still accomplished his plan through Hezekiah and through a better way than through Solomon, right? Hezekiah gives us a better testimony than Solomon, but it's through a very different path. And even though it was a much harder one to walk, in terms of comfort level, I would much rather be Solomon than Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusted God, and God accomplished his plan through Hezekiah. And through the story of Hezekiah, we have this incredibly powerful witness of who God is that inspires us today. And you, as you are faithful to God in times that are difficult, you can be that to others. You can be that additional witness, that list, that chain of witnesses that shows people it wasn't a special thing that he just did for Hezekiah. God does this all the time. And so that's what we're called to do is to trust God when we're under siege and to trust that he will accomplish his plan if we stick to the way he calls us to live because it would have been really easy for Hezekiah to surrender, say, you know what, I must have been doing it wrong, so God must not have wanted me to do these things, so I'll surrender, I'll go back to, uh, I'll bring all the stuff back, all the, you know, we'll start sacrificing on all the high places and I'll do whatever the king of Assyria wants me to do and see if he might get to survive that way. Our temptation is also to try and fight back against Assyria the way Assyria fights against us. As Christians, that's one of our big temptations. But ultimately, we trust God and we trust the plan that he's put, put before us. And as we translate this into the New Testament, I think it's important for us to translate it well as we look at what this means for us as Christians today. Because our temptation as American Christians is to then look at... Cause I, I've even been doing it here. I know that like, I may personally be under siege you may personally be under siege. And that is a good way to, to process this for our own experience. But it's important for us to remember, I am not Jerusalem, and you are not Jerusalem. As we translate this idea into the New Testament, we find the Bible, the New Testament uses a different connection to talk about, uh, there's, a, there's a different, uh, the, the city of God is, uh, applies to something different, not me as a person. And the most encouraging passage that I know of to explain this is a moment in the Gospels when Jesus asked his followers, who do people say that I am? And they list off some of the rumors that have been flying around. And Jesus says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, or the Christ, the Son of the living God. Does that sound familiar? I'm really glad Jack went back and, and covered that because we confess this every week and, it's, and this is where it comes from. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And there's a controversy. So Peter means rock. So he says, you are rock. You're the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And there's controversy about, is he talking about Peter the person, in which case he's the first pope? Or is he actually talking about Peter's confession? And is the confession the rock? I actually think it's a third option. I think that it is Peter, but not because Peter is the first pope, but because Peter is the first person to say the confession that makes him part of this building. Like, Peter, you are the first one to confess this. That makes you the first brick in the building. 
And on that brick, I will build this church out of people who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And every one of us, as we confess faith in Jesus Christ and as we obey him, we are built into this church, this city. And it is that city, that church, that will not be overcome. You personally may be overcome in your circumstances. I mean, you may not, your life may not go the place you want it to be. You can be defeated. Even any particular congregation can be defeated. But the promise of Scripture is that the church of which we are all a part will never be defeated. Hell itself cannot defeat it because it is because Jesus is the head, because it is filled with the Holy Spirit, and because God's purposes will not fail. So as we choose to follow Jesus, we join a city that will never be overcome. And the hope that you have, no matter what happens in your life, is you are on the winning team. I can guarantee you that no matter what, you are on the winning team. And you have Christ with you to get you through whatever is going to be in front of you and to be able to use you to accomplish his plan. But the way I can guarantee you victory is not to say God will give you everything you ever wanted in this life, but to say you are on the winning team, and ultimately God's will for this world and God's will for his people is the best possible thing that could happen. And so as we go into eternity according to God's plan, we will all win that victory. So as we close, I encourage you to think, about what may God be calling you to do or to decide in this moment now. As you look at your role in, in God's plan, what is he calling you to do? Maybe he's calling you to confess Jesus as the Christ, to become a brick in that building, in that church that will never be overcome, and to take your place among God's people. Today is the best day to do that. And you can do that by coming forward during this song. You can do that by talking to one of our staff members or uh, a Christian that you trust. If you're online, we'd love you to get a hold of us or just talk to, some, uh, to a Christian that you know that can talk you through that process. But today is the best day to give your life to Christ. Maybe you're in a moment of siege and you need to tell God, you need to, to confess to God that temptation that you're feeling, the fear that you're feeling, how overwhelmed you're feeling, and just let him know. Lay it out the way Hezekiah did and ask him to save you. You don't need to fear that conversation. You don't need to fear laying out your doubts and your frustrations before God. He wants to hear them and he will hear them and he will help you through. Maybe you need to recommit yourself to living the way God has called us to live. Maybe you know that you have, you have taken the wrong path and you've compromised in the wrong ways and you need to rededicate to that. Maybe you need to be part of a group of people. Uh, maybe you need help with that journey and you can join one of our small groups or our service teams and be part of, of a small group that will help each other with those struggles, with those journeys, with those battles. You can sign up for one of those through the Connect card. Maybe you want to be part of a family, that you want to be part of a local section of that building that is working together to follow God's plan, to love each other, and to show God's love to this world in whatever circumstances we have. That's who this church is seeking to be, and we would love for you to be a part of that. And if you want to know more about what that looks like, you can use your Connect card to sign up for a class. We spend an hour and a half after church one Sunday talking about who this church is, and what we do and how you can be a part of it. We'd love for you to make that decision as well. So I encourage you now as we sing our final song to ask yourself, what is God calling you to do today? Do you follow him? Let's sing.